Jonah chapter 2. Today we will come to the latter half of chapter 2 that we began last week. Uh, we walked through 1 through 4 and we're going to start at 4 again today and look at something in 4. A couple things from a fresh perspective. And we're going to become much more acquainted with Jonah's perspective and things that he learned uh, along the way about or remembers about who God is. Before we read the text this morning, um, one of the great themes of the book of Jonah that we have not touched on so far um, is this one, is that God is giving confirmation in this uh, story of this prophet who is running from his mission and the calling upon his life that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God had promised Abraham that he would become a great nation, and from his descendants would be one that would come that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in Genesis 12, God's heart um, already begins to speak of that it would be a heart for the nations. He will call the nations to relationship with himself. Jonah 2 is one of those that speaks to the Jewish nation, Israel, to say to them that God's heart was not just for them, but God wanted to rescue every nation, every people group, every language, every tribe. And so it streams that to us. Jonah is having a hard time with that, and we will look at that uh, more in the days um, to come. So let's look, Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter um, so we can kind of get the whole context of things because it's important for us to see um, all of it together as we finish up chapter 2. So then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, and yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds, or seaweed, were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. And I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. So if you weren't here last week, I want to uh, briefly kind of bring you up to date with our first point this morning. And we looked at verse 4 when I talked about this, or actually 2 through 9, um, as I talked about it last week, that God had begun to awaken while he was in the belly of the fish, God's word in Jonah's heart. And I want to just kind of take that and kind of... Uh, say it a little bit differently today, Jonah begins to see, as he's in the belly of the great fish, that the greatest preparation for our life to do what God wants us to do is to know God's Word. So last week, Jonah had run from God, he had forgotten about the call of God upon his life, and he had kind of just recklessly headed to southwest Spain, walked away from all of those things, and in the midst of that, his heart has gotten harder. He's forgotten about the truth of God's Word, so much so that he thinks he can actually get to Spain, and God's not going to be there. That he thinks he can be on the ocean, and God's not going to be there. That he can literally run away, and God cannot catch him. And so Jonah's lost the, the perspective of the truth that he has known. But now in the belly of the great fish, 
Jonah quotes in verses 2 through 9 from eight different Psalms of David. So this prayer that Jonah prays are not words that he thought, okay, these are, these are words that I want to say. Actually, what Jonah is doing is he is quoting Scripture. And I believe that's one of the greatest things that God loves. For us to quote back to Him and pray the Scripture. And I don't know if you do that, but I think one of the greatest things, if, you, if you're at a place where you're like, I kind of don't really know how to pray, then pray things of the Psalms and pray the Scripture, reading it out loud. God, as I read this, I'm praying these things to come true in my life, in our nation, in my family, in my children, whatever the case uh, may be. So Jonah quotes eight different psalms, which indicates this to us. He knew those psalms already, that there was a time in his life where a passion of his life as a prophet of God was to memorize and study the truth of God's Word. And now in the belly of the great fish, darkness, slime, tossing, turning, three days and nights, probably not fully understanding where he was, but here in that place, God awakens God's word and Jonah remembers it. Now, I want, to, I want to show you something that we've talked about before, but Jonah actually quotes Psalm chapter 138. So would you go back there with me, Psalm 138, and then we'll get back to um, Jonah 2. And I want to show you something that Jonah quotes in this prayer inside the belly of the great fish in Psalm 138, verse 2. You'll see this temple language. You'll see this language of steadfast love and thankfulness. Then Jonah will mention all of those things uh, today. But at the end of verse 2 is something we've talked about before. And it's bare. Um, it's important for us to take a look at it today. Psalm 138.2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name. And your word. Now look up here. So David is writing, psalmist here, is saying, listen, God's heart is this. God created the world. He spoke it into existence. He, he intended a certain purpose and a certain order for mankind. And as God did that, God did, he, he established the world with two primary purposes. That the greatest thing in the universe, the greatest thing on planet earth, the greatest thing on the sea, the greatest thing on dry land, the greatest thing in a building, outside of a building, is the exaltation of God's name. God has exalted His name above all things. And then David writes, not only has God exalted His name above all things, God has exalted His Word. He has lifted up His name and His Word. And it's truthfully, if you've walked with God for a long time, it is hard to separate those, those two things. They are intimate to the glory of His character. And so God has set up the world to be about the glory of His name and the exaltation of His name connected with and through and from the Scripture. And so if we are a believer and we want to be like Jonah and we want to run, what Jonah's doing is not lifting of God's name and not embracing the truth of God and that's caused Jonah to have lots of problems in his life. And if you want to be a Christ follower who's following him, and if we want to do that, then we cannot do anything else but those two things. Are you with me? Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. For you, O oh God, David says, you've done two things. You have exalted your name and your word above everything.
That's it. And I think a lot of the things that happen and come in our lives is because we neglect that great reality. And Jonah, in the belly of the whale, quotes Psalm 138.2. He had that memorized. It's what's awakened in his heart. It's what he remembers. As he looks toward the holy temple, he remembers, look what I have done. I have neglected the glory of God's name, and I have run away from God's word. Now, I do this from time to time, and I'm going to do it again this morning. I want to give you a practical example of what happens when you neglect knowing the truth of God's word. It's a living example, and it um, came out in the news this week. And so I, I want to just, I want to always speak, you know, um, from what I preach, from what you, you and I listen to on, on Christian radio, whatever the case may be, we always want to check things with the truth of God's word. So there's a contemporary Christian artist. Her name is Lauren Daigle, and she has the number one and the number six downloaded albums on iTunes right now, and she has the number one song. She had an interview, gave an interview last week, and they asked her this question. She was being interviewed by Dominic Nadi, and near the end of it, um, he asked her whether or not she thought homosexuality was a sin, and this is how she answered. She said, I can't honestly answer on that in the sense that I have too many people that I love, and they are homosexuals. I can't say one or the other, I'm not God. So I'm, I can't say one way or another, I'm not God. When people ask questions like that, I just say, read the Bible and find out for yourself, and when you find out, let me know, because I'm learning too. Again, this is the number one and number six downloaded Christian album in America today, who's on stage, on churches, everywhere, and she says, I am not motivated enough to read the scripture and to see what God has to say about something. So this, again, this is just an example, and I pray for her, and I hope that there are people in her life that are going to say, hey, you need to think through this. You need, to, you, need to, you need to think through your perspective on this. And I wanted to say that to us this morning, to say this, just don't buy everything that's out there that people say. Does she sing good? Absolutely. I've sung her songs. But you and I need to always go back to not a version of Christianity, but we embrace Christianity. We embrace the truth of God's word. And Jonah in the belly of the whale recognizes it's God's name and his glory connected to his word that must be the driving thing in my life and in your life, my life, all of our lives. That's got to be the thing that drives us. So Jonah says, listen, the scripture is the best preparation for life, knowing it, because when those moments come and a question's asked, if we know the truth, it comes out. If we don't know it or forget about it because we're running, then we'll kind of hem and haw about that, and we won't stand upon the foundation of the truth of God's Word. So to prepare for a moment of crisis, we need God's Word. Now, Jonah's not prepared for his moment of crisis here. It's, and he has to kind of sit in the belly of the well for several days, and then he begins to, God awakens that and begins to think about what he has done and how awful it is of what he's done. But the Word of God comes out again, and it prepares him for what he's going to do. Next week, we will step into chapter 3. Jonah's going to journey from where he's vomited out on the shores, and he's going to walk about 375 miles, likely from where he's put back onto the shore to the city of Nineveh in Babylon or modern-day Iraq. And he's going to begin this journey. He's going to walk all the way there. He's not... If you had this idea that he was vomited out in Nineveh, he was not. That whale would have to have some serious power to spit him out 375 miles. So he's put out on the shore, and he's forced to walk all the way there, and we will begin to look at that um, next week. But God gets his attention. 
with his word. Secondly, this morning, is I want to point out this morning the activity of God and the purpose in everything that takes place in our lives. Look at verse 4 again. He says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon, uh, I shall look again, I shall again look upon your holy temple. So I want to point this out because I think it comes out of verse 4 and what is taking place in Jonah chapter 2 as he's trapped and he's alone with his thoughts and he is praying and he's reflecting and taking an honest evaluation of where he is in his life. God is always at work even when you and I are running away from him. His activity doesn't cease. Now listen, this is not a man-centered world. Our world thinks it is. It is a God-centered world. God is always at work. So if man wants to rebel, that God's not going, okay, I'm going to kind of wait to do something when mankind gets a little bit better. No, God is always actively at work doing all kinds of things, sometimes touching our conscience to remind us of holiness or showing the futility of some of the choices that we make. And he's calling us back to himself even in our running away from him. That's why God hurled the storm at Jonah. It's why he churned up the sea. It's why in the the dice, when the rolling of the dice, it said no to everybody else. But when it came to Jonah, it said yes. It's why Jonah, when he's cast into the ocean, the storm ceases and God appoints a great fish to swallow him. Because watch this, even in the midst of Jonah's running, God is active. God is doing something. And God is after Jonah's heart. We love to quote this, and I think it's a great one to quote, and I think it's appropriate here. Let me just read it one more time, one that we know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many things? All things. Now, sometimes I don't fully get how God works what he does. I don't get it all, Um, and I think sometimes our not getting it is a good thing for us just from the standpoint is it forces us to have to trust in those moments that we don't fully understand but I think even in the midst of Jonah's running God is active we see that in all the things that God does to appoint this fish to swallow Jonah because God had a purpose for him and I am so thankful and I hope you are too that God just doesn't go um, okay I'm going to treat you the way you treat me can you imagine what our life would be like he does not the psalmist says treat us as our sins deserve So here's Jonah running, we don't want to have anything to do, he's trying to go to Spain, get away from God's call, and yet God is pursuing him, and God is active, and God is doing things. And so sometimes God's activity comes when things have been done to us. We didn't sin, we didn't do anything, somebody else has done something to us, and it's crushed us, and it's bruised us, and in the midst of those moments, God is active, and he's doing something. And then sometimes, even in the midst of the stupidity of the decisions that we make, God is active in those moments to teach us lessons to soften our heart, to rescue us and remind us that he does, has not abandoned us and he uses all things to accomplish his glory. Some of us are in here today and Angela kind of did it a while ago. We could stand up and say, this is what I did and this is what God did with that decision. And that thing that we did, there's not anything good about that and yet there's lessons learned in it that brought about a fruit. Again, not that it was right, But God does, he uses all things because God has, you can't read Romans 8.28 unless you read Romans 8.29. Here's why all things work together for good for those who love him. 
Because for those whom he foreknow, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. See, God's greatest aim for you and me is not to be good citizens of the United States of America. God's great aim for us is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And so sometimes that means in the midst of our stupidity and our sin, God's going to do something there because he is faithful to complete the work that he has begun in us. And again, sometimes it's hard to see it, but Jonah tells us that even in the midst of our running, sometimes God is actively at work. I think when the prodigal son went to the distant country and he spent all of his money and he wasted on reckless and wild living, I think the goodness of God removed the reward of all of that sin from him that there became an emptiness for the son to take a look at everything around and go, man, there's nothing here that satisfies. Nothing here anymore that satisfies. And what is the, when, it, when the fog clears from the prodigal son, you know what he thinks of first? Who does he think of first? The father's house. Man, the servants back at my father's house, they've got it better than me. I'm feeding these pigs, and I'd like to eat. It's so bad for me. I'd like to eat when I'm feeding the pigs. And so just like Jonah, the prodigal son, together, some similarities with those two, they remember the goodness of God. And I think Jonah sees the activity of God and the purpose of it all, even in the midst where he has no desire to follow God. Now, we could talk about that for a long time today. Why does God do that? I don't know. I, the biggest thing I could say is simply this. His goodness is beyond any comprehension that you and I can fathom. That he will even use our rebellion to bring about us turning back to him. And that's what God does. He's just infinitely, infinitely good. Now, thirdly, this morning, Jonah is going to be very descriptive describing his situation. Let's look at it again. Look at verse 5. This is the third thing. I want to talk about the descent and the drowning nature of sin. Waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I mean, graphic language. So... We saw last week that he said, you cast me into the sea. So, so while the sailors threw Jonah overboard, Jonah in the belly of the whale has come to the conclusion, it really wasn't them. God was behind and active in all of this, and it was God who threw me overboard. But as he's thrown overboard, we know that pretty quickly the churning of the seas and the wind dies, and the, the Mediterranean is calm. Now, we don't know how long that is, but probably likely the indication is pretty quick that took place now we don't know how long Jonah got maybe quickly carried away and he's floating he's trying to stay above the water and he gets to a point where he's just tired the muscles have given in and he just sinks and as he sinks and he does this I don't know how long he can do that but he sinks down under the water he looks above him he looks beside him he looks below him And he is absolutely surrounded by water. To try and take a breath meant stepping into the next life. Have you tried to breathe water lately? It's not possible. We can do that as we are growing in our mother's stomach. And briefly, children are born in water. But, you know, once they come up and we're out, man, there's no breathing water anymore. That that is over with. So Jonah is describing an unbelievable hopeless situation. And he, he just says it over and over. 
for the waters to come up to my neck, I'm, I'm, I'm in deep mire. And he just speaks of all of these things and the reality of what has happened about him. And as he looks around in a situation and he thinks, gosh, my body wants to breathe, it wants air. As he's reflecting back on that instance where he wanted to breathe, he quotes Psalm chapter 69, verse 1. Listen to what he quotes in the belly of the well. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So he's there. And his physical reality is a picture of the spiritual reality that has taken place. Physically, he's sinking. He goes down to the bottom where his feet kind of hit the bottom. And there's seaweed all down there. And he gets tangled up in it. And again, he's, he's holding his breath. And there he is. He wants to breathe. He's tangled up. He can't free himself. And he is stuck, hopeless. No Bible conference is going to fix this. There's no youth camp experience. There's no singing my favorite song that's going to fix this. He needs God to come and rescue him. He can't do anything in and of himself. And so there he is wanting to breathe. He cannot. He sees in that moment how desperate it is. And God has appointed this great fish who comes and just opens up its mouth and swallows Jonah. And when he gets inside the belly of the well, he's able to breathe again. And he recognizes, I've, for the moment, where he fully understood fully what happened. He recognized in that moment he's breathing again. There's been a rescue. And as he sits with his thoughts over several days, there is an awakening that comes in Jonah's heart. And that, and that awakening just tells him this, God is my salvation. God is the one who has rescued me. And I think Jonah's situation... In the, this descent of his sin and the nature that happens there reminds us that God does not ever wink at sin in the midst of his children. That God, there's a consequence that's going to come at some particular point in time with God's children that he's going to deal with their sin and their rebellion. And sadly, sometimes it's pretty drastic. I thought this week about Samson in Judges chapter 13. This guy named Manoah was married. He and his wife were very old. They didn't have any children. Um, kind of past child-rearing age. An angel, angel of the Lord comes to them one day and says, Listen, um, we've been under the Philistine power for 40 years, but you're going to have a son, and your son's going to deliver Israel. This is what Judges 13 tells us. God's purpose and will for Samson is that he would begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That was, that was God's intention for Samson. Well, early on in Samson's life, chapter 13, things are great. First part of chapter 14, things are really good. But from about 14.4 on, things are bad all the way to the end of chapter 16 of Samson. And Samson made some grave mistakes. He had bad friends and girls. Women were his problem. He dated the wrong kind of people, wanted to marry the wrong kind of person, uh, quote, fell in love with the wrong kind of person, and it really cost him. And his name, Samson, means little ray of sunshine. Isn't that beautiful and cute? That was his name. And darkness came in Samson's life when they took two red-hot pokers and burned his eyes out. And he's forced to grind grain like an animal. And yet at the end, there's this big worship thing going on to this God. And Samson is brought into the temple to be made fun of by the Philistines, and he calls out to God once more, and God does what? He hears him. Samson 
gets his arms placed on the columns within the temple there. He pushes them, and the temple falls in. And you look at his life, and you go, what a tragedy, until you come to Hebrews chapter 11. Guess who's in Hebrews chapter 11? Samson. You, know, you read Judges 13 through 16, you just go, man, where is all the faith in Samson's life? Well, I think a good portion of his life, faith wasn't there. He just kind of played the game and got caught up in his fleshly desires. And yet, there must have been enough moments that the writer of Hebrews spoke about Samson. And it, to me, that's good news today. Anybody got it together all the time? Got it together? Everything perfect all the time? Great decisions? Great confidence in God? No. As a matter of fact, look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. Look at the history of the church. Some of the greatest people who have been used by God had some flaws in their lives. And so none of us have got this together. None of us are perfect. And Jonah gets to the place where this descent and drowning nature of his sin brings him to a place where he recognizes God must do something. And I love what the text does next. Look at the second part of verse 6. second part of verse 6 says this, And yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. So we saw the descent of Jonah in the water. Now we're going to see the ascent of Jonah, the lifting up of Jonah to life and the rescue by God. In the most dire moment, God comes through with Jonah when it was just about all over for him. God is sovereign and he can allow all of this and he can step in any time that he wants to. Now also, I'll just say this. God is sovereign. He could allow this to go bad for Jonah. He could have just allowed Jonah to die, but God did not do that. God stepped in and he rescued Jonah. He was not done with Jonah. He had a purpose and a plan with Jonah right now. Now all through the time Jonah was running, he thought what he was running on was sure and a great foundation, but it wasn't. God kind of took all of it away. He's been done with God, but God was not done with Jonah. You and I can look back over our life and some of us have got our life right together uh, or got our, li- our life right with God at church or maybe at youth camp or with a friend or over coffee at home, whatever the case may be. Some of us are much more hard-headed and it takes a well experience to kind of get our attention, to kind of wake us up that we need to get our heart right with God. And so Jonah was at that place and he just needed this drastic experience and yet this drastic experience happened and what could have been, what definitely was not a happy place became the transforming place in a place where Jonah's heart and worship of God began to happen again. And you and I should love the yet moments in our relationship with God. I was wasting away, and yet you lifted my life up from the pit. And all of this tells us, listen, God is not disinterested in the affairs of our life. He is absolutely deeply interested in, and what's going on. Yeah, but what about when I just don't love him very well? Listen, we do this all the time. We think God's like us. He is not like us. Do we understand that? He does not. When we're faithless, he's not. Okay, I'm faithless. He is faithful. And so God, in the glory of who he is, 
Even in our running, His children, God is pursuing His children. Now, is there God's love never stops? Is there a pleasure toward us in God's love that increases? Yes, obviously it does. He's never pleased with disobedience. He's always pleased with obedience. So there's the pleasure that comes to our lives from God toward us because we love to walk in obedience. But even in the midst of our rebellion, God's love does not stop. As a matter of fact, this is so true that the Old Testament writer, and I can't remember, I can't pull it out of my head. It's, I think it's Ezekiel maybe. that says that God does not rejoice even in the death of evil people and evil men. That God's heart's broken that when people die who even hate him, that they have died without him. So he's not like us. So we've got to be careful not to lay that picture and perspective of him on him when it's not accurate. And so God is interested in what's going on in our life. He's interested in Jonah. And there's this great lesson for us that God is for us. Now look with me in verse 7. I want to point out a few things here. There's an awakening of grace that happens in Jonah in 7 and 9. As he quotes a couple of psalms here um, that's pretty amazing. So the first thing he says in verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away I remembered the Lord so let me tell you what happens when grace begins to well up again and be awakened again in our heart there's a remembering and a returning to the Lord this phrase fainting away in the Hebrew means this I was covered with fainting I was dizzied with fainting I was overwhelmed with fainting in Amos uh, 8 13 it's translated I was thirsty with fainting uh, in Isaiah 51.20, there's a nuance to the word, um, and it means I was, I was exhausted with fainting. But the real heart and crux of the word here means this. It, it describes the soul curling in on itself. It's just a shriveling up of the soul. So Jonah says this. This is what my life was like. My soul, because I was running from God, and I wasn't loving the glory of His name, and I wasn't loving His word, my soul literally was shriveling up. It was curling in on itself, and God stepped in, and he rescued me. And when he rescued him, here's what Jonah said as he thought about it in the belly of the well. I remembered the Lord. The fact that he remembered the Lord tells us that there was once something, too, that happened that he could remember. And so he remembers the greatness of this, of God, and who God is, and, and what it was like to walk with God and be intimate with God. And so Jonah gets to a place that you and I need to get to. A lot of times there's not a seeking of God until there's a desperation for God. And Jonah before wasn't desperate for God. All of a sudden now he needs deliverance and there's a desperation and God has brought that to his life and it leads Jonah to be overwhelmed with the grace that God has brought. So he remembers the Lord and he returns to the Lord and there in the belly of the well he is amazed at mercy. The fish represents the mercy of God. God could have just left Jonah wrapped in seaweed, finally opening his mouth and trying to breathe because he can't hold it anymore, and he's just done with, and he's just a prophet who drowned, and that, that's not what God did. And Jonah in this moment in the well recognizes as he remembers the Lord, he's, he just sees this, I'm amazed at mercy, that God has done something in me that is incredible. So not only does he remember in return, but secondly, I think his hard heart turns to compassion. Now watch this. 
as he remembers the Lord, he remembers what God is like, and he remembers how God is now treating him. God has rescued him. God has given grace to him. God has extended mercy to Jonah. What Jonah deserved, he didn't get. What Jonah didn't deserve, he got grace. So he gets this beautiful mercy and grace from God. And I think as he looks at his life, here's what he begins to examine. You know what? I didn't want to go to Nineveh because they didn't, there weren't worshipers of God. They were enemies of God. They worshiped idols and they did all of these things. And I think Jonah took a look at his life and he recognized, you know what? I'm just like the Ninevites. Their hearts, understandably, are against God because they're pagans. They're not of the covenant people. I'm of the covenant people, and my heart looks just like theirs toward God. So Jonah, I think, moves from a place of being ready to go to Nineveh that we will begin to look at next week in chapter 3, that the hardness of his heart becomes soft because he remembers the glory of God and he sees that God has been good to him by rescuing him, and this is what grace should always do in our lives. Grace should always lead to more compassion to others, not hardness. And if you and I are here today in this room, and there's a relationship in our life where there's just deep hardness toward that person, and it's just hard and hard, and our thoughts lean that direction, then you and I have shut off grace to that person. And listen to me. As God has been to us, so we are to be to others. As he's extended grace and mercy to us, then we are to do the same. We are to forgive where forgiveness needs. And the hardness of heart, listen, towards sinners, the hardness of heart towards sinners is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law, Paul writes. So here's Jonah, and I think his heart gets soft. And then he says something that scholars for about the past 3,000 years have been debating on. What did Jonah mean? The next part of verse, or first part of verse 8, he says, And those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The word pay regard there in the Hebrew means this. It means to pay deference to or to bow down to vain things. Vain idols means this in the Hebrew. It means empty nothings. Empty nothings. And so he says, listen, those who worship idols, they bow down their heart to just nothingness. Nothing is there. We see this when we go to Nepal. Have you ever been in one of those countries where there's just idols everywhere and you see people crawling to these statues? Uh, the first time we went, there was this big place, um, this big circle um, that was, uh, for, it was for Buddhists. And we watched this lady, she would do this. She would do this and she would get down on her knee and then she would do this and then she would lay down like this and she would stand up and she would lift her hand and she did that. It's about, uh, about 200 yards around this thing and I watched her do this calling, crawling, calling, crawling, hoping that the spirit of Buddha would do something. And so Jonah says, listen, those who pay deference to idols of nothingness, they forsake for, they forsake steadfast love. So here's been the big debate. Is Jonah talking about Nineveh or is Jonah talking about his heart, him? And here's what I think Jonah's talking about. I think he's talking about himself. His idol has become hardness of heart, running away from God. 
his idol has become, I only want God to save Israel, not other nations. And as he's in the belly of the well, he recognizes, my heart is like the Ninevites. My heart has not been worshiping Yahweh. My heart has been hard toward God. And I have an idol in my heart. And my idol is my heart. And I've lifted my heart above God. So I'm following my heart, my will, my way. And so I have an idol in my life, Jonah's saying. And that Jonah, that, that idol has kept me from worshiping God and it's kept me from living aware of the steadfast love of God. So look at verse 8 again. Those who pay regard to vain vain idols. Now he's not going to the temple, but he's got idols in his life. Jonah does as he's running. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. So is he talking about Nineveh? Probably, possibly, but I think he's talking about himself. He has lost the perspective of God and so therefore he has an idol. It is Sunday in America. There's going to be all kinds of worship happen today. 3.15 today, you know, God um, doesn't care about sports, but he does care about the Cowboys. At least Cowboy fans think we think that he does. Because, you know, after all, they're America's team. There's going to be a lot of worship today. A lot of exalting of names. A lot of exalting of symbols today. A lot of bowing down. There will be people today who will be sad tonight if their team doesn't win. And a star on helmet cannot speak. And we bow down to that, we bow down to money, we bow down to status, we bow down to a lot of things. And listen to what the psalmist wrote about idols. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, they have eyes but do not see, they have ears and do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths, and those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So Jonah recognizes, you know what? I have forsaken steadfast love of Yahweh for my will, and that's become my idol. That had become his idol. My will, God, not your will. And Jonah, I think, sees the vanity, the chasing after the wind, where he cannot catch anything because he's running away from God and he sees that God is good. Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And there are worthless idols and Jonah had embraced it. And then he recognizes, you know what? I've run away from steadfast love and steadfast love is incredible. I touched on it a while ago. Let me just touch on it again just for a moment. When you go to Luke chapter 15 and it says the prodigal son spent all his money and uh, riotous living and, and uh, he recognized, man, I don't have any money. I can't eat. I'm here. He's not ready to go home yet because there's a lot of pride still there. And he goes and he hires himself out to a man and he's pig slop. He's just sp- spooning stuff out and throwing it to the pigs. And he looks at what the pigs are eating. He's like, man, that looks good. And there's not anything, trust me, there's not anything good about what he's pouring out in that pig pen. Yet his life had gotten so bad. And it says this, and when he had come to his senses, in the Greek, the idea is when he'd come to his senses, the fog that was there and he couldn't see things clearly, it, it went away. And though he still fully couldn't see, he knew enough to know this. If I go back, at least my father will make me a servant. I'm no longer worthy to be a son. 
but I can go back and at least I can live in the servants' quarters. Can't be a son again because I've been too bad. And he goes back and he's journeying back. And guess who's waiting for the journey back? The father is. And the father's not waiting to go, oh, I've got something to say to you. Now the father runs down the road and embraces the son, kisses him, and he needs a shower. His feet are dirty. He has no shoes. He has no, the idea is there's not enough clothing covering him, so he needs a robe. And the father does this. He kisses, and the son, all the way back, has been memorizing a speech. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. Father, and he's memorized it. And as he's in the embrace, and the father is kissing him, The Bible tells us, Jesus says, that the son is telling the father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And the father is saying, hello, hello, hello. Do you see my actions towards you? You're in my embrace. You belong to me. And listen, folks, today, listen. Do not miss that beautiful picture in Jonah's life and in the prodigal son's life that there is a God who pursues children who have rebellious hearts and he pursues them because he wants them to come to know him. It's pretty good, isn't it? Can you find a love like that out there in the world today? No way. You can't find it anywhere. But you can find it in one who came and laid his life down on a cross so that you and I could be redeemed to him. And then the Bible tells us that Jonah in verse 9, has this fresh sense of worship. He says, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, and what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah recognizes I've not been a worshiper, and so he right there, watch this, right there in the belly of the fish, he says, I recognize the glory of who you are. I remember who you are, and I worship you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill what I vowed to you. What did he vow to you? I think he's going back to pre-running from God He had embraced the call to be a prophet. And he said, okay, God, I'm going to go to Nineveh now. I think it's what he's saying. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go and do what you want me to do. And I think it's only natural for the one who recognized he's been saved from death to be extremely grateful for his rescue, and it leads Jonah to worship. In this moment, I think it's his renewal of commitment to get his heart right with God, and he worships God for his undeserved rescue. And then he just says this, this grace that awakened him. He says, God, you're the God of salvation. Nobody else saves but you, God. And we're going to go through these real quick. I think this is more than a statement of fact by Jonah. I think it's a triumphant declaration that God is the God of salvation. Salvation is not from any other source but God. It's not our works. It's not the church. It's from God. Salvation is a matter of God's pure mercy if if god if we got what we deserved there would be no salvation because we can't earn anything our nature is against god and so salvation is a matter of his unbelievable mercy and thirdly god gets the great glory in salvation if somebody didn't go to nineveh god wasn't going to get great glory but if jonah would go to nineveh and preach god was going to get the great glory and we'll see next week god gets this great glory So somebody had to step into that and the authority, fourthly, the authority of salvation rests solely 
with God. It's not in any other place. God alone is the one who justifies. And we're going to close with this. The sovereign deliverance of Jonah and the length of his reach. Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And I thought this week, it laughed, shared it with Mark. He laughed, shared it with my wife, and she laughed. I wonder when he was thrown up onto the beach, and he looked back, and I wonder if he thought this, thank you, God, that I came out the front end and not the back end of this, of this fish. <laughs> I just wonder if I thought, yeah, there's a little more grace to me. And God spoke through the fish and the spit vomits him out listen to this and it just says this God's going to accomplish his purpose Jonah did not want to and God just said oh yeah I want you to I want you to do what I told you to do secondly the process of restoration sometimes can be painful and messy so when he's vomited up I don't think that was like he wasn't standing on an escalator coming out of a great fish he just stepped off I mean he was vomited out I don't know if you've done that lately, but it's pretty violent. And so he's violently cast out. But watch this. He lands on dry, dry land, which says this. He's at a place now that he can go and do what God wanted him to do. So the place of safety on the shore brings an opportunity for Jonah to renew his service and follow through with what God wants for him. I find chapter 2 amazing. And I said this last week, and I said it to the first service this morning. I do not get this man named Jonah. Um, I don't get him. Uh, This is one of the books where we wish we had, you know, could we have a chapter 5? Because in chapter 4, he's not anything like he is in chapter 2. He's angry at God again. And I don't get him. I don't understand it. But I think in chapter 2, I think we have to be careful to say... um, well, that wasn't really authentic because of what he was like in chapter 4. Well, sometimes we have chapter 4 moments, do we not? We have chapter 2 moments, and then all of a sudden we have a chapter 4 moment. So let's not be too hard on him because our chapter 4 moments can come as well. But this is the grace of God in action. God giving us what we don't deserve. And here's the mercy of God in action. God not giving us what we do deserve. And it's seen in the life of Jonah. So he's going to begin next week stepping toward Nineveh. 300, it's not over, 375 miles he's got to walk, probably if it's from Joppa where he spat out again. And we'll begin to look at that next week. Isn't that great? Just such great things he sees about God. He has not given up on you and I. If you're running, he can run a little faster. You just, you just try to win the battle of wills, we won't. And for some, they will go to the grave like this to God, and then they will bow before him too late to say, you are king of kings and lord of lords. So let's do it now. Let's bow now. Let's worship. Let's be passionate. Because now's the time to do so. Let's pray.